You're listening to the free edition of Sweden in Focus from The Local. If you would like to listen to a full-length version of the podcast, as well as an additional midweek episode, please check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade to Membership Plus. Here's this week's free edition. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Sweden in Focus, the local's weekly podcast looking at what's happening in Sweden. We're recording this episode on Wednesday the 1st of June. Later on the show we're going to talk about Sweden's new work permit law which comes into force this week. We'll also chat about why secondary school graduates in white hats will soon be blaring music from parade floats in a town near you. We'll look into a claim that resurfaced on social media this week about what happens with visiting children at dinner time in Swedish homes. And we'll discuss the Swedish justice system and what you need to know if you get arrested in Sweden, which hopefully you won't. I'm Paul Amani and I'm joined today by James Savage here in Stockholm and Richard Orange and Becky Waterton in Malmö. How's everybody doing? Great. Hello. Superb. Good. Good. James, you were away traveling last week. What was it like? What was it like at Orlando Airport? It was absolute. I mean, yeah, leaving the country was great. Traveling was great. I went to France and it was wonderful. But getting there was horrible. I mean, you've read, everyone's read all this stuff about what the airports are like. And I can say it's all true. And if you've been in Sweden reading the Swedish press, reading the local, you'll have, you'll have read about Arlanda. The queues are insane. But it doesn't just stop there. It felt to me, traveling through Europe, like the whole European airline system was screwed. Frankfurt Airport, where I had to change planes, was a nightmare. You know, I think it just felt like everything was short-staffed. Everything was was sort of running on empty. Is it going to get better if people are planning to fly during the summer? No. Well, the, the, the Swedavia that runs Orlando Airport says it's not going to get better. And you can see this in the airlines as well. What you see has happened is that the airlines have had a very, very tough pandemic. You know, they laid people off and they haven't been able to get people back. It affected them greatly financially. And they're still trying to catch up from that. And I, I think if you're going to travel this summer, be prepared for delays, for long waits. We've got national day coming up this week that's a happier thought what happens on swedish national day it's not really a big celebration it's not like norway's national day to kind of use that example there's not like a massive parade and waving of swedish flags but there's a couple of things we, we have a special cake enough when our dogs bark when which is like all other summery swedish cakes it's features cream and strawberries there's citizenship ceremonies so if you've become a citizen within the last year but yeah, other than that, there's not really that much. It's, it's it's mainly just a day off if it happens to be on a weekday. And otherwise, it just kind of, no one really pays attention to it. Did anyone here go to a citizenship ceremony on National Day? I did. Yeah, I, I think it was 2017. I found it quite moving, actually. Not so much for myself, but to see all of the people in Malmo who are becoming citizens, you know. And a lot of them do special sort of funny things. So in the story I've done about it, I put a picture I took up when I had my own citizenship ceremony of a of an Indian family who came in a, a sari in Swedish colours and little girls from Arab countries all in a sort of frilly Swedish colours coat. And it, it's very it's quite moving. And when I did it, you got to shake the hands of the, not the mayor, but the head of the city council. And you got a um, a sort of little goodies bag, which had a kind of guide to how to park in Malmo and a park, <laughs> park earring squeever, <laughs> which I thought was hysterical. It's sort of like, you know, welcome to Sweden. 
don't park wrong. <laughs> and you, you, get Fika, you get Fika as well, right? Don't you? You, you got Fika. You got yeah, Fika exactly. And National Day is fairly is fairly new here, isn't it? I mean, it only came in a few years ago to replace like the Pentecost holiday. Is that right? Well, it was a thing before, wasn't it? They they celebrated it, or some people celebrated it. There was a big to do at Scanson in Stockholm on National Day, even before it became a public holiday. But yes, it only became a public holiday. I'm not sure which year it was, but it was since I came to Sweden, probably about in the early 2000s. It replaced Whit Monday which a lot of people thought was a bit crap because Whit Monday always fell on a Monday and National Day falls on whatever day it falls. And, you know, in, in typical Swedish tradition, you don't get a compensation day if it falls on a weekend. I'd forgotten about this. This makes me so angry. I want, I want Whit Monday back. I want Whit Monday back, <laughs> absolutely. And, I, and I, I ha- I'll happily celebrate National Day on Whit Monday. Can we just... I mean, just I'm all for it? National Day and Whit Monday. Just give us the both days off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's like the perfect fine. solution to me. Absolutely fine. It is a Monday this year, so we can pretend. Okay, let's, Wait, let's so do, not leave Are Sweden. we off on Monday? Yeah, we're, we're off, off on Monday. Monday. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know that. What a nice surprise. <laughs> After National Day is over, school graduation season is going to kick in in earnest as students who have just completed their upper secondary or gymnasium education are going to pour into the streets of Sweden's towns. And if you live in a Swedish town or city, you'll definitely notice. Can you tell us a bit about this tradition, James? It's, it's a wonderful tradition in my view. I mean, like in, like in every country, when kids leave school at the age of, in Sweden, 19, roughly, they want to celebrate. And in Sweden, they have some very specific traditions to do this. So it sort of derives from when young people would finish their, their final school exams, and then they would sort of burst out of the school in, in a big crowd and, you know, in, in relief having got the exams over with. Now, they don't really have big final exams anymore, but they still burst out of school on the allotted day. And if you go to a gymnasium school when it's this, um, when what they call a school of sleuthing, the the last day of school, they will all burst out and they'll be wearing these kind of gorgeous little hats, which look a bit like, I don't know, like sailor's hats, white with a kind of black rim and a little peak on it. And then they will um, parade around their local town. Um, In Stockholm, they'll parade all around the centre of Stockholm, um, often on the back of trucks. Uh, on the back of you know the back of lorries they'll they'll stand there drinking champagne waving flags looking really happy playing music it's it's a really 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 joyous experience there's also some flag controversy isn't there richard well in malmo and some of the big cities yeah i mean cuz obviously Sweden being a multicultural society now, a lot of the people who graduate, you know, have a Palestinian background or an Iraqi background or an Iranian background. And what's become a tradition for them, perhaps because they maybe don't drink so much, is, is that they drive around in cars waving their national flags out the window and honking the horns. You know, it, it's incredibly noisy. And Malmo for weeks is just horn honking everywhere and cars with waving Palestinian or uh, Lebanese or Iraqi flags driving everywhere. And, and almost every year, you know, people write comment articles in the paper going, you know, why aren't they waving Swedish flags? You know, it shows their dual loyalty. They're not loyal to to our country. And then people write back going, no, but, you know, surely they should be celebrating that they're, that they're, you know, that they're graduating. You know, it's a positive thing. So it's always a bit of a discussion. And, you know, I think it's, I think it's in a way, it's great. It's sort of, it's a way of the different communities in Sweden saying, Look, you know, our kids are making it. We're graduating. It's much better than if, you know, people don't finish Grundschule. I think it's um, 
it's a good sign. What's wrong with having, you know, slightly dual identities? So I think Sweden should maybe be confident enough in itself to allow people to express both their Iraqiness and their Swedishness. This whole question of, oh yeah, well you live here, so now you just have to be Swedish. Like that's not going to happen. People have their own culture. People have their own background. People come from somewhere else. That's just how life is. And if you're going, if Sweden have decided that we celebrate things by waving flags around, then I think you have to accept that people who have another background and another flag are also going to wave that around. You can have both. Everyone who's moved from one country to another who has a different background is going to have a bit of both. And just 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 relax a bit yeah. about it. I also I also see these Sudeten celebrations. They're such a family celebration as well. Like obviously, yeah, the kids go around and get drunk, but also you have Sudeten parties where like your whole family are invited. Your, your grandparents will maybe come to visit. Your, like Everyone is there. So obviously if your whole extended family are coming, that also raises the question of your nationality again because it's like my whole family are here, my whole family are Palestinian. If, there, if I was doing something purely Swedish with my Swedish friends, then maybe I'd have a Swedish flag. But this is specifically like the intersection of someone's family identity and their school identity. So I think it's kind of stupid to say, oh, right, yeah, but, but when you're celebrating with your entirely... Palestinian, Iraqi, whatever family, you're not allowed your own flag. You're, even your, your family members who have never lived in Sweden maybe just come over to celebrate. But I have, one thing I have learned is that Swedish, <laughs> there is a, there, the Swedish flag etiquette is very, is very sensitive. <laughs> I mean, you know, people get very sensitive even if, you know, this is slightly different, but, you know, if you have a summer house and, and, and a flagpole and you, and you raise a, even, a, you know, even another European flag on that flagpole, I've never done this, but I've heard of other people doing this, and people get sort of a bit uppity and cross about it. And it's the same in Denmark as well, but I I think that's because when when the Germans took over Denmark, they were forced to look at German flags all the time and they maybe wanted to not relive that experience when people started. When they, when they were freed again, they didn't want to start seeing other people's flags everywhere. Yeah, I can identify with that. Yeah. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to everyone who has taken our survey so far. We look closely at all the answers and we read all the comments to help us understand what you like about the podcast and where you think we could make changes. If you haven't yet responded, please go to the link in the episode description. It just takes a couple of minutes to respond. So, do Swedes really not feed their children's friends? If you've been on Twitter this week, you've probably seen how Sweden has been maligned internationally after people on the internet claim that when children in Sweden are over playing at a friend's house, they're made to wait in their friend's bedroom when dinner time comes, rather than being invited to share in the feast of meatballs at the family table. There's so much to discuss here and the internet has completely lost its (laughs) mind over it all. But first of all, is it true, Becky? Well, kind of. I don't want to be like fueling the anti-Swedish hatred here. But um, I asked my husband about this and he said it had never happened to him, but he knows people that were like told to go and sit upstairs when friends were feeding the kids. But it's not because Swedes don't like children and it's not because they want kids to starve and it's not because they never know how to be hospitable hosts or anything. It is just in the case where... It's kind of in a situation, it's not like a play date. It's in a situation where you have a kid spontaneously turning up at your house to play with your your child. And um, I think the Swedish kind of view here is it's absolutely fine to come over for dinner. We just need to know a week in advance so we can plan our weekly shop around the fact that you're coming over for dinner. So sorry that you've just spontaneously come over an hour ago, but we didn't plan for this on Sunday when we were buying all of our food. So you can't be here. But also, like, uh, jokes aside, a lot of it is kind of respect for the other parents. It's like, if your mum is at home and she's been planning a meal, or your dad, dads can cook food as well. If your parent is at home planning a meal 
and they're expecting you home by 6 p.m. But then you eat dinner at your friend's house at five. Then your mum's going to be angry because she's planned this food for you. But I think the reason why this kind of blew up is because people thought that every single Swede would not feed a friend's child. It's not as black and white. That. It's much more kind of nuanced. I mean, my, my, my neighbour who grew up in Staffan's talk, which is like it's a kind of suburb of Malmo where you know it advertises itself as not having very many immigrants and it's extremely yeah. conservative they were the co- the uh, municipality that recently got into the news because they refused to pick up refugees from the airport yeah but she she said that growing up in Staffan's talk this was ab- completely the norm she was like yeah absolutely I never they would never feed me I always had to go and sit in a friend's house and this is not not just something that happened occasionally this is what happened all the time and mm. uh, but then again she's our neighbor and she's constantly feeding my kids and people said oh this is maybe a throwback to the 70s but I don't think so I think it still happens now in certain parts of Swedish society I think one of the reasons it's like blown up so much is that culturally if you are not expecting this behavior it seems extremely rude if you don't understand the kind of unwritten rule that all the kids go home at 6 p.m and eat fish fingers and then come back and play again then it's, it, it seems incredibly rude that you're just following your friend to the dinner table expecting something to eat and then they say, no, you have to go home now. So I, I get why this kind of cultural clash has, has raised so many eyebrows abroad because it, it's people that didn't really know that this was a thing that happens in Sweden. But I think it, it chimes well with this... Uh, with Sweden's culture as a as quite an individualistic society, um, that's sort of all that's that's about um, not being reliant on on other people. It's not a society that values spontaneity or even really likes or respects spontaneity. It's a society that plans. It's a society where you kind of look after yourself and you're never dependent on other people. The funniest thing about the, the whole Twitter conversation was the, the Swedish uh, tweeters who sort of came out to defend this as a rational way of behaving yeah. and, and just made it so much worse yeah. in, in the, the reasoning that they gave. Like they're here to play not to eat like but i saw another tweet it was someone saying it was someone who wasn't swedish was saying it's so kind of shameful that you guys don't feed guests like how how can you not do that that's so rude and there was a swede who had replied saying in our society it's shameful to take food from someone if they and so they eat less than they were expecting to eat like they were saying like from my point of view I would feel ashamed if I knew I was taking some of your food away from you so you fit, you got a smaller portion which I also thought was a really interesting point I th- I as well. I think it's a and really it it's Swedish. very Swedish it's this kind of negative considerateness. So so you know there, there might be some lonely person living in an apartment block who no one will ever speak to and the reason they don't speak to them is because they think maybe he doesn't want to be disturbed you know and that person will just be <laughs> dying in loneliness yeah. and and p- people think well I don't want to interfere I don't want to impose myself on them and and it's this sort of neg it's considerate but it's considerate by holding back. Yeah. Well, this is this kind of links back to something Richard was saying as well. You were saying that, like in Sweden, the six pm family dinner time is sacred. It, it absolutely is. I think that's a positive thing. Is is like most countries, the the parents don't aren't necessarily home for their kids' supper. Uh, you know, at least one parent. My dad was never home when I was at home. He came home at nine after I was asleep, just see him on the weekend. Whereas in Sweden, both parents are normally always at home for the six o'clock supper. They leave work at five or whatever. And I think that's a great thing. And maybe it's partly that as well, that it is such a family time. It's the only time in the day that the sort of the nuclear family sits together and they don't want Mm. to have lots of 
lots of friends, kids kind of there as well. Isn't that the problem? Isn't that the problem that, that you know, you say, well, OK, it's a family time and it's what? And it will be destroyed if little Edvard from next door comes round and, and sits with them. No, surely that family time will be enhanced by inviting more people in. That's what hospitality, that's what that's what life is about. I think it's more the question of why is little Edvard not with his own family? Yeah, I think why, that... what it, why is he not enjoying his family time at 6pm and eating fralokor from macaroni? I think I think this this is probably most of the problem where you have this clash of cultures because because in it, we've got this big Falkitz Park near where we live and it, I find it hysterical because the moment six o'clock happens it's still full but none of the children are Swedish it just becomes you know Latino Arab who are that who stay there till like eight or nine and in the summer and um, and I think that may be part of the reason that there's this clash because if you're an Arab parent. You don't expect your kid back at six o'clock. You know, why Why should they come back from their Swedish friend Edvard's house? But from Edvard's parents, they're like, they're like, what do we do? We've got a kid in our house. You know, it, why, and, and there is that sort of clash in, in that every, not everybody works to the same um, schedule. Mm. We feed neighbours' kids all the time and they feed our kids and there's just messages flying back and forth. Is it OK if Edvard eats with us? And it invariably is. And it's just it just gets sorted very quickly. And so this tradition is very alien to the me. The people that have kids now, they were like, oh, yeah, no, I experienced this when I grew up, but my kids have never experienced it. And I think it is that that you can be like, you can quickly say, oh, is it OK if he stays for dinner? And does he have any allergies? Can he eat this? It's like, yeah, fine. OK, good. I'm not going to overstep any boundaries here. I'm not going to accidentally food poison this child. Exactly. And this, um, this whole thing morphed into a... a much bigger discussion and there was a hashtag on Twitter called Swedengate and articles have been written about it in the international press in the last couple of days. It just went mental. So it, it went beyond this discussion about mealtimes into sort of Sweden's colonial legacy. And can, can anybody talk about what else happened here? I mean, I've seen stuff that it's gone increasingly less and less accurate. Like there was this map that went mega viral, which sort of had this divided Europe into places where you're highly unlikely to get fed as a guest. It's children who drop round. It's not like all guests. <laughs> and it's not highly unlikely. It's just something that sometimes happens. So you're, you are very likely to be fed as a guest in Sweden, anyone who's in any doubt. Just um, as long as you tell them that you're coming. Just, as, just as, But don't drop in uninvited. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to talk now about what happens if a foreigner gets arrested in Sweden. But before we get into it, can I just ask, have any of, have any of you ever been arrested here? <laughs> no, unfortunately not. It would have been great no? uh, information for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> What's a few years in prison? Well, I mean, but it's what, what counts as being arrested in Sweden, actually. But I was arrested, as in an officer came up and said, du er gripen, we are arresting you. So, so I count that as being arrested. But it was a gr- grotesquely unfair situation. I was, I was going into the Malmo city court to just to collect some materials for journalism, like a CD with all of these um, court process details on it. And I arrived there and they've got this kind of scanner for your bags and everything. And I went... Um checked my pockets and I had this little kind of pen knife, Opinel knife for getting mushrooms and stuff. And I said to the woman, I said, look, I've got this. I can't, presumably I can't bring this in. Can you hold it for me? And she said, no, no, no. Everything has to go through the machine. Put it through the machine. And I thought, okay. So I put it through the machine and then I went round and waited for my bag to come back. <laughs> and then they all just ran out and said, we're arresting you. And I was like, uh, but I, because you brought a knife into a courtroom. Are you mad? What are you doing bringing a knife into a courtroom? And I'm like, but I just said that I brought a gun. And anyway, they took me off to this room and I was protesting loudly, <laughs> obviously. And they sat me down there 
and uh, I had to wait for half an hour. And eventually, two police officers came up, and I explained what had happened. And they sort of said, "Well, you know, they can't hire the best here. You know, they they, they don't get the brightest people in this situation." <laughs> so, so they let me out. And actually, it was quite interesting because they told me lots about their sort of Enco Chat stuff and how the pandemic. It was quite interesting actually. They, they, I had a good chat with them. It worked out well in the end, apart from the fact that I didn't get my knife back. It's totally unfair. I was That's like, so but you told me to bring it in," and she went, and she and she would just and she just sort of. As if nothing had happened. I think what had happened is that is that she realised she shouldn't, and her superior had said he's brought a knife in his bag, and and she didn't. Then oh, it was just yeah. oh, it, was a, it was a disaster. But it sounds to me like they've stolen your knife, and somebody there should be arrested. Could could be could be. <laughs> but it's it's not great being arrested in Sweden. I was looking into it uh, for an article this week, and I mean I th- the the risk is that once you're arrested. And they, especially when you're in Holland, which is when you're detained, so they have to decide that. So first, a policeman can arrest you, or, or any citizen can arrest you, if they have reason to believe that you've committed a crime. So a policeman can do just do that on their own judgment, or if you've, you know, if, if a prosecutor's already found you, you know, done their investigation and discovered that you you are the the murderer, then then you know that, that a policeman can come and get you. And what they sort of say is do a gripen, and at that stage they can take anything off you, which they might well take your mobile phone off you, but they don't have to. And then they take you to the station, and, and at that point. From as soon as you're arrested, you you can and should ask for a defence lawyer. Ideally, you should have that before you have an interview, because the defence lawyer is your only contact to the outside world. Once you're arrested, you probably won't be able to ring your family or your embassy or anyone. So theoretically, they should inform these people. But a defence lawyer, I spoke to, you said that very often they don't. So quite often, you, you can end up being being kept in kind of incommunicado. Definitely overnight, maybe several days until anyone finds out that you're there. I mean, this happened to one of my friends who uh, had had uh, drunk a little bit too much at a football game and ended up being uh, taken into a fuller cell, which is one of these like cells they put you into to kind of sleep off your drunkenness. And like his his girlfriend was completely stressing out about where he was. She rang the police to say, "Is he in the fuller cell?" Like, oh no, we can't give you that information. So she reported him missing. And then 24 hours later on the dot, they rang us like, yeah, he's in the fuller cell. He can come home now. I find this quite shocking, actually, <laughs> that, um, that that people are people who haven't been convicted of anything are deprived to that extent of their of their right to communicate with the outside world. But it's worse than that, isn't it, Richard? Because you can be kept quite significantly isolated, even during a, a long period of pre-trial detention, right? I think, I, think, I think the longest is about four years that people have been kept in pre-trial detention without being charged for anything or found guilty of a crime at all. They can but keep you ridiculous. in for four years. And it's theoretically indefinite. Theoretically, they could keep you keep you there forever. But it has to be approved by... A court every two weeks, I think. And Sweden gets criticised about this by the like the United Nations Committee Against Torture and the Council of Europe pretty much every year, but nothing has been done, has it? The UN's Torture Committee criticises both the fact that there is this unlimited pre-trial detention and no bail law. You can't. There's no. There's no bail system in Sweden. But it's not just the fact that they keep you in pre-trial detention. It's the fact that the prosecutor can decide that certain restrictions are required in order for you not to influence the investigation, which can be really far going. I mean, people can be kept in 
pretty much virtual isolation. There's also an issue here, and this is what the Swedes would. This is what the Swedes say when they're defending the system. They're saying, "Look, well, Sweden has this principle. In, there's this principle in Swedish justice called umiddelbarhetsprincipen, the immediacy principle. That means that there's very little that can be submitted as evidence in court that isn't." submitted as evidence directly in court. So what you say to the police in your pre-trial interviews or in your, you know, while you're under arrest is of limited value in the court. What is important in the court is what you say to the court. And so they need to kind of keep you, they kind of need to keep you fresh and, you know, and, and prevent you from changing your story a hundred times before you go to the court. So because they're not able to use that early evidence against you. If you're in pre-trial detention for four years, you've got a good amount of time to think about a good story for the courts. Like that, that seems like they're giving you lots of time to kind of make up an excuse or figure out how, yeah, I don't know, it just... So it makes makes sense in theory, but maybe not in practice. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, but but they would say, well, you know, sometimes if it's a complicated if it's a complicated criminal um, trial, then it will take a long time for the prosecution to build its case, and therefore we need the we need this long pretrial detention. But that is putting the interests of the justice system, maybe the interests of justice, <laughs> over the interests of the of, of the individual of, of someone who's not actually at that point convicted of anything at all. I can really see why. It's not something they can change easily. If that's the case, you'd have to change the entire system of prosecution, hmm. perhaps, which is which yes. is a lot more of a challenge. Exactly, and that's what they're saying. On the day we're recording this, Sweden's new work permit law comes into force. The stated aim of the new legislation is to counteract the exploitation of workers and to attract and retain international talent. But what's it going to mean in practice for people applying for work permits and are there any downsides to the law? In a couple of minutes, we'll get the view of an immigration lawyer. But first, let's take a look at what's actually in the law Becky, if I could turn to you first, what are the new provisions for applicants? Yeah, so the, the main kind of new thing is that you now need a copy of a signed employment contract um, to, to get a work permit. And before you could just kind of have an offer of employment, so it didn't need to be on paper and signed. That, that's kind of one of the main things, which uh, will probably make it a bit harder for some people to get a work permit um, some exceptions to this include kind of seasonal work. So if you're going to be a berry picker, you don't need uh, a signed contract. There's also this new talent visa that's being brought in, which gives you nine months. If you count as being highly qualified, so that basically means if you have a master's degree and you want to come to Sweden to explore the prospects of starting your own business or to uh, try and get a job to look for work in Sweden. There's also this this law is kind of the idea, one of the ideas behind it is to get rid of kompetensutvisningar, people that are deported or their, their, their applications are rejected because they're, um, they had some kind of minor, minor admin error. Um, so they're kind of the three main ones. And then there's also this, this final one, which is the end of the seven year rule, which before it meant that if you'd had a work permit for four years out of the past seven years, then you had to apply for permanent residency, which kind of on paper sounds fine. But where it became an issue was if you had maybe not been in Sweden for the entirety of those two two-year periods. So maybe you've got a two-year work permit to do a project which then ended after a year. So you went back to your, your original country and then you got another work permit that was also a year. And then you've had these two work permits. You don't qualify for permanent residency, but you don't you can't get a third work permit either. So you would have had to wait for this kind of seven-year period to end before you could get a new work permit. Um, and they've put an end to that as well. So um, now there's not going to be any sort of limit on how many work permits you can get. 
Okay. And what about employers? How is it going to affect people like you, James? <laughs> people like me. Feel like I feel like Krasa Sork from uh, from Bamsa. People like you are swanning off to France at the drop of a hat. If you wanted to employ somebody from outside the EU, um, how how is this going to affect you? Well, we'll see. I think is the is the answer. I mean, in, in theory, it should have been perfectly possible for for people like me, for people like us, for for employers to employ people out, from outside the EU first, in, 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 even before this change. The idea was that if you, you know, people with a, with a job offer should be able to move to Sweden. But we had all these issues with competence, these talent deportations. We had these problems with the seven-year rule. And we, we heard time and time again that it had been fixed, that the courts had fixed it, that they had, you know, they, they'd established a new praxis that said that the migration officers would no longer be deporting people for minor errors. And what, what happened is that the, the migration agencies still kept deporting people for minor errors. Which, which for someone in my position, if I'm making a decision about whether I want to give a job to someone who is applying from outside of the country, makes me very nervous because you think you're doing the right thing. If Just to explain, you know, a lot of these, these errors were, you'd be told, oh, you've got to buy this insurance, that insurance, and the other insurance. And if you've bought all of those for the, for the employee who's coming, then you're all right. You'll buy all those insurances. And then some jobs worth at the migration agency will say, well, no, no, that's that's slightly the wrong kind of insurance. And they won't help you beforehand. They won't tell you, you know, they won't, they won't give you definitive information that you can rely on and say, look, I've got this approved, stamped by the migration authority. No, they'll only tell you afterwards you've done it wrong. And that doesn't give you the security you need when you're making a big decision, big decision for you and a big decision for another person who's going to move their, their life over to Sweden. And I don't completely trust that this will be any different. I like that you referenced Krasa Sork, by the way. I didn't realise you were a big Bamsa reader. I'm not a big Bamsa reader, but I have, have some cultural references. <laughs> Krasa Sork, for anyone who doesn't know, is the is in Bamsa, the, the, the kind of... The, the the children's comic, which is kind of comically Swedishly social democratic <laughs> in its in, in its values, um, Krista Sork is the big bad boss, kind of the Mr. Burns of the the Bamsa sphere. Absolutely, one of the big extra risks there is for employers is that the the new law requires them to inform the migration agency if there's any change to to the terms of their employees' employment or it's any negative change actually. So before you could hire someone and and you know you could you know, give take them down to 20% or something and you didn't need to inform the migration agency and it was only later on when perhaps when they were applying for a renewed work permit that the migration agency might look back and go, well, you didn't earn the right salary or something like that. So this th- this time they have to inform, an employer has to inform the migration agency and if they don't, they risk a fine. Uh, and the other thing is that the migration agency can do spot checks to make sure that you are employing them you know that you haven't got somebody you've employed as a you know computer programmer is actually working as a chef we're, we're going to listen now to a short excerpt from a chat i had with pia lind who's an immigration lawyer here in stockholm let's hear what she had to say when i asked what she viewed as the main negatives and positives of the new law i think it's sad the income requirement for low-skilled labor. I mean, I can understand it. I can understand that, that the government wants to make sure that you can support your family that you bring. But at the same time, it's not going to stop people from wanting to come here. And it will be people, you know, spouses and children left behind. That's something I, I wish wasn't needed. But then on the other hand, there are Great improvements, example, this to take away this limit of periods with permit, that will be a major improvement. And hopefully this new uh, 
permit that you can come and, and search for work, that that will be a positive thing. We'll see. I hope so. Call me in a couple of weeks when I see what kind of uh, <laughs> what kind of problems that will come up. It, it's difficult to foresee. Hopefully, the migration agency uh, that they're on top of it and that they have worked really hard on on setting the new internal guidelines so that it will be smooth. But you never know. The migration agency has fifty three thousand pending work permit applications, which will now be subject to the new rules. Should people who have already submitted applications be concerned about delays in processing? Yes, I I would definitely expect um, delays because now the immigration agency, they will have to make more assessment. They have to make thorough investigations and assessments in each case when it comes to the work permits. Under the new law, the Migration Agency can demand to see the terms of employment and an employer will be required to inform the agency if the terms are made worse. So on paper, this sounds like good news for employees, but is there a risk that the increased paperwork will make employers less inclined to bring in workers from outside the European Union? I definitely think there's a risk already now. Employers are nervous. I see from time to time they have problems to understand what is required of them. So this is another thing that might be making it difficult for them to take the step to employ people from outside of the EU. And the Migration Agency says that one of the main aims of the law is to stop people being exploited. Um, Has there been a big problem with unscrupulous employers um, exploiting foreign workers, Richard? I think in some industries there has been. Like, for example, in the building industry, there's been huge issues with people being brought over from you know, non-EU countries, particularly Ukraine and Russia, to work on building sites who, who then don't get employed on the terms they, they were expecting and don't get paid a lot of the time. You know, you have the, the, these suddenly the person they thought had employed them just disappears and they end up with having to go home uh, with no salary. And cooks in the restaurant industry, I think it happens quite a lot. But I think in the, the areas that we're talking about with talent, you know, mainly the kind of high-tech industries and engineers, I think most of those employers are a try. They have, you know, good HR divisions and they do their utmost to, to employ people correctly. But I do think that in some industries, like the building industry particularly, there have been issues. And what about this new talent visa? Is that going to work? Are people going to come here on a nine-month visa to, to look for work or start companies? I spoke to the um, civil servants who had been sort of worked up the talent visa and they they said that they were extremely it was extremely uncertain how many people would use it i think they said they expected about 500 people to apply using it a year but the guy his name's carl rom i think he he said that it, it could be much more but it could not be used at all I mean, but I have met sort of entrepreneurs who've come to Sweden to, to start up companies because there is expertise here. There is a quite, for, for, for all the complaints, there is quite a good startup infrastructure in Sweden. So maybe people will come here to start their own companies. But if it means that someone, what, if just has a master's degree and can come here to look for a job, that does open up Sweden to quite a, quite a large number of people internationally and you know, that, that also, you know, for lots of people who have not have a personal reason to want to move to Sweden, that will make Sweden more accessible for them than it would otherwise have been. The Social Democrats have said that they want Arbetsmarknadsprövning, which is kind of, you can only hire someone if you are hiring them into a sector which has a shortage. So if the local wanted to hire a journalist, they would have to prove that there was a shortage of journalists in Sweden 
um, which meant that they could hire one from abroad. Which is the system Sweden had until Reinfeldt brought in yeah, the new Labour. 2008, I 2006, think. 2006 or yeah. yeah. So this is still a more lenient work permit and a kind of work immigration, labour immigration law than a lot of Swedish political parties actually want. Yeah, I think it's going to get tighter and tighter. Yeah. So if you want to move to Sweden, do it now, even though you might not get fed. <laughs> And that takes us to the end of this week's Sweden in Focus. Thank you for listening and please share your feedback about the podcast in our survey, which you can find in the episode description in your app. We'll be back again next Saturday. Until then, take care. That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus. If you'd like to hear a full-length version of the podcast each week, as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis, please upgrade to Membership Plus. Make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus is a podcast by The Local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage.